welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I am Margot Landman, Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Stephen Platt, a professor of Chinese history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and author of the recently published Imperial Twilight, The Opium War and the End of China's Last Golden Age. Steve is also a member of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me here. Let's start with the origin story of Imperial Twilight. How did you arrive at the topic and how did you go about conducting your research? Obviously in archives and libraries, but where and how was access? Oh, where to begin? Um, I mean, to start by the time I, by the time you finish writing a book this long, usually you've forgotten why you started it in the first place. <laughs> um, I think the impulse that sent me back to the Opium War era actually came from my last book, um, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, which was on the Taiping Rebellion. And when I was doing the research for that, um, I was very surprised. Uh, like a, a big piece of that book was about the British intervention in, in the Chinese Civil War at the time. Um, and I was really surprised to find um, really sort of strong voices in Britain arguing that the Taiping Rebellion, rebellion had been Great Britain's fault. Um, and as the argument went that by fighting the Opium War, Britain had destabilized the Qing government, which had made it possible for this mammoth uprising to occur. Um, and so by that line of reasoning, these particular people argued that it was therefore Britain's humanitarian duty to help the Qing dynasty put down the Taiping rebels. So this was Chinese making this argument? It was British making, British? This, British making oh, this argument. Okay. Um, and the, that tone of opium war guilt I hadn't expected to see anywhere. And that's one of the things that sent me back to see how far back do those misgivings actually go? Because we tend to think of the British in China as just being gung-ho imperialists without a second thought sending in the gunships. Um, and what I found was that actually the Opium War was enormously controversial in its own time. And there were very strong voices of conscience um, in Great Britain who tried to stop the war. And that ultimately actually became the core of, of my research. That was one of the central questions I was trying to understand. Which, basically boils down to, you know, how did the British actually come to a point where after generations of peaceful trade in China, that they would even consider of using violence to further the ends of their, of their trade there. So that means that you did most of your research in Britain. I did a lot of it in Britain. Um, the, I mean, the sources in general are all over the place. The Chinese sources, um, there are wonderful source bases to work with. Um, since the Opium War has been so important, you know, since, you know, since it was really revived in the 1920s and 30s, um, there are these wonderful mammoth uh, collections of archival sources that have been collected and, and, and published. Um, and there, you know, the writings of officials who were involved, the debates on opium. Um, one of the, on, on the Chinese side, some of my favorite sources were just the writings of scholars in the 1820s and 30s about foreigners and about foreign trade and the various ideas that were advanced about sort of how this can be beneficial to China, where we should draw the line, what they actually understood about and Great Britain. And not hard to get access to these things? 
No, no, these are these are certainly available. Um, and on the uh, but the bulk of the research was on the was on the British side, and there it was the British government archives, the correspondence of individuals in the middle, diaries, all kinds of you know, business papers, things like that. Please set the scene for us. The situation for Western, primarily British traders in China in the 19th century, when your story begins, was rather unusual. Limited to Canton, men only, not allowed to study Chinese, the monopoly of the East India Company. How did all of this come about? I mean, it's it was sort of this gilded cage that they operated in because they were in this tiny compound outside of the city of Canton. I mean, Guangzhou was the third largest city in the world at the time, um, but they couldn't go inside the city itself. So they, you know, they were kept at arm's length in a little, very, very comfortable compound. I mean, it should, we should note that the buildings there had, you know, they had armies of servants, including servants who just pulled the rope to make the ceiling fans turn. Uh -huh. um, so they lived in great comfort and they made a lot of the foreigners made a lot of money there. So, I mean, that like, in a certain sense, they were frustrated by by certain limitations, but they were also raking in money hand over fist and it was very beneficial, very beneficial. Um, the reason they were stuck there was largely because the Qing government is you know, beginning with the Qianlong Emperor. Um, he was the one who formally restricted British trade to Canton. Um, they were very concerned about interactions between Chinese subjects and Westerners. Um, and they did not want ordinary Chinese coming into contact with foreigners. They were worried that they would plot with them. They would become seditious. They would break the laws and things like that. So the, the reason for concentrating trade at Canton was in order, in order to keep the, the Westerners in one place where they, were, where they were tightly controlled. They were in a small compound. Um, they were only supposed to be able to trade with just a handful of these Chinese merchants, they were called Hong merchants, who had a, a monopoly on the foreign trade. And they could do some trade with other merchants in Canton to a, to a lower degree. But the idea behind it, this is very much a stricture placed by the Chinese government um, in order to limit contact between Chinese subjects and, and, and Westerners. Um, and a lot of this book has to do with all of the different ways that the British found, you know, various British individuals tried to get around this and get beyond it and how they tried to learn the language or sneak into the country or get themselves up the coast. Or through Tibet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was uh, Thomas Manning who made it to Tibet was because he gave up on trying to get in any other way. Amazing. So you focus on individuals who played various roles in Sino-British relations from the McCartney mission to the first Opium War with a few Americans in the mix as well. Yeah. How did you choose which characters to describe? Are they emblematic of something larger than themselves or do you think that they as individuals were significant? History is comprised of men, not too many women in this story, who act rather than as buffeted by the winds or tides of history. Oh, what a wonderful phrase. <laughs> um, in choosing characters, I mean, as a historian picking characters, I mean, you have to have sources that allow you to actually work with the character. But in deciding who goes in and who, who stays out, um, they have to mean something, either because of something they actually did or because of something they represent. 
Um, so each of the characters that appears in here, and anyone who's more than just you know a one-dimensional side character that you know, sort of trots in and leaves, but all the substantial characters in here really represent something larger than themselves. Um, one of the one of the the main ones being uh, George Thomas Staunton. He's one of the. I think he may be the only character that actually survives from the beginning to the end of the book. Um, but he is—he was really, you know, Britain's first recognized sinologist and the first expert in China. We follow him from being a child going along the McCartney mission to his early, very depressive years in the Canton factory, learning Chinese, and he winds up playing an instrumental role in the Opium War. But the other figures that come and go. Um, I mean, there's always a tension because sometimes you fall in love with a character and you just love their story and it's such an amazing story to tell, but it has to, it has to mean something. Um, so like the case of Thomas Manning, um, I would have loved to include him just because he was such a fantastically eccentric character, sneaking himself into Tibet, um, the, the, uh, getting, um, arranging a meeting with Trying the Dalai Lama. Look Chinese. Yeah. But... He also represents something much larger than himself, which is that he's one of the first to bring back a report saying that ordinary people in China actually welcome foreign contact. And that is what is going to grow and develop with future travelers and which ultimately becomes really the logic of the Opium War. Because if you think about how absurd it was for Great Britain in military terms to send a small fleet of gunships, a few thousand troops to make war on the largest empire in the world, an empire of 300 million people. The logic that made that possible traces back through a series of British travelers and adventurers going back to Thomas Manning, which is a, a, a faith that they developed that the ordinary people in China want contact with the British. Mm -hmm. They want the opening of markets. They want, they, they are themselves not anti-British. And therefore all of this, you know, these strictures that keep the British stuck at Canton and limit the traders they want, that that's entirely because of the government. And therefore, and the ration ends or the, the rationale on the Brit British side, or at least their strategy was that if you can fight just against the government, the ordinary people will come over to our side because they want to see us win essentially. Um, that they will trade with us, they will welcome the opening of ports. And sadly, there's enough of that that does happen to enable the war to be successful. I mean, even while the British were fighting against the Qing dynasty, they were, you know, they had Chinese spies working for them, they had Chinese merchants who were happy to sell them supplies when the guns weren't firing, and just the reality that the, the Qing society at this time was not this sort of lockstep unified empire that Europeans used to imagine. But there were all kinds of, you know, it was a very individualistic society and all and the merchants were all out for themselves. And of course they would love any kind of trade that would be beneficial to them. So talk a little bit about the trade. Um, tea, cotton textiles, woolens, porcelains, although you don't talk much about them. And then opium. Yeah. How did all of this work? All of it worked essentially is just the... Uh, the foreigners, I mean, in, in this case, the British and the Americans, um, looking to find anything they can possibly sell to the Chinese in exchange for the tea that they want. Because the big driving force here is tea. The whole reason for the China trade um, is Britain's national drink. The only place in the world they could get it at this time was in China. They had to buy it at Canton. Um, but there were real ups and downs in terms of what kinds of products the Chinese merchants wanted to buy from them. 
Um, there were various fashions. Sometimes seal skins were fashionable, or very you know, pel you know animal pelts from the Pacific Northwest. Um, and then you know they, the, the the merchants will all be you know scouring for those, or they picking up sandalwood in the South Pacific or sea cucumbers, anything like that. Um, cotton textiles were one of the most successful products they had. Um, and but ultimately, up to the up to the early 19th century, they had to make up all of the difference in silver. Um, opium creeps in. It's there for a very long time in a very small amount. Opium takes on a larger and larger and larger part of the share of the commerce um, once you have a drying up of the global silver supply in the early 19th century. It becomes harder and harder for the British to get their hands on enough silver to buy their tea. Meanwhile, opium usage is spreading in China. That wealthy people are using it. It becomes very fashionable. There's this seemingly limitless market for it. So they start carrying more of that. Um, and you can read the book for the details on what happens in India to cause an explosion of the supply. Um, but it ends up completely derailing the regular trade. Um, this parallel illegal tr commerce in opium, which goes on along the coast outside of Canton, um, winds up ultimately or really eclipsing the, the, the much more beneficial aboveboard trade. And how important was the trade for Britain, for the U.S. It was far away. Yeah. Was it a big, did it play a big economic role? Was it more colonial something going on? It was much, Especially with India. Yeah, it was much more important for Great Britain than it was for America. I mean, the for the U.S., China never really amounted to more than about 5% of U.S. foreign trade in this period. So... The individual merchant families in America that were involved got fantastically rich, but there weren't very many of them. Um, whereas for, for Britain, this became, in some ways, uh, it, it emerged as, as sort of a necessity for floating India, um, this incredibly, this unprofitable colony that the East India Company had established in India. Um, that there was no direct way to bring to to sort of bring money back from India, um, so the triangle a triangle trade developed where you know Indian cotton was processed and sold in China, and then the proceeds from that were brought back to Britain, and that triangle triangle really kept things lubricated for India. Um, and as far as, as Great Britain, the home government is concerned, um, tea, I, the, they had to have tea. It was the national drink. Um, and by the later part of this book, they're getting a 100% tax on all the tea that the East India Company carries back from China. So that becomes a very significant revenue stream, meaning that if there's trouble in China and the Canton trade gets shut down, that's a huge hit to Britain's national revenue. So they have, they have this indirect interest because they need the tax money that comes from it. There seemed to me that there were clear parallels, whether you made them explicit or not, between the dealings between the Westerners, the British primarily, and the Chinese in the run-up to the Opium War and relations today. Not specifically Britain, China, yeah. but all of us, China. And when you described containing the foreigners in this little spot so that you could keep an eye on them. It brought me right back to when I first went to China in 1979 to teach, and we were very carefully proscribed in where we could go. Yeah. Um, 
And of course, it was easy to keep track of foreigners then because there were so few of us and we were so distinctive. Yeah. Um, but you had to get a special travel permit to go outside of your home base. Right. Um, but more, more relevant to others, you say at the very beginning of the book, China is now coming to resemble the confident and central empire that preceded the Opium War, a China that was powerful, prosperous, dominant, and envied. So what's the moral of the story for us in the early 21st century? The moral of the story, um, that we can, if we want to see what a genuinely strong, confident, central China looks like, we don't have to look very far, but we do look have, have to look far enough back that it's before the era of the Opium War. And before it was before it was fully challenged in Asia, especially that peak in the 18th century for the Qing Dynasty. Um, and when I talk about the resemblance today, is that I mean, China's leaders today very much look to that period as being what China should be in the world. So what will come of that? I mean, nobody's about to start asking, you know, foreign ambassadors to kowtow in front of Xi Jinping or anything like that. Like they, everything will be different. But history rhymes in various ways. And one of the and one of the lessons from looking back on that pre-opium war era is that yes the foreigners were tightly constrained in the trade that they could do but they still made a huge amount of money in that trade and it was still very very beneficial to them just not as beneficial as they sort of sometimes hoped it would be and the old trading order in canton which was done under china's terms actually worked very well so all of which is to say it's not necessarily the end of the world but Today we have so many, we're so much more deeply engaged than then. I mean, then you could basically draw a wall around the Canton compound and that's where the foreign trade goes on and there's a very limited number of commodities. And now with joint ownership and joint investment and ownership of debt and just, and you know, Chinese nationals all over in the United States and vice versa, I don't see any way to disentangle it in that same way. While there may, there may be impulses on both sides to try to have sort of the government intervene and try to control things, that's never worked very well. And people always seem to find a way around it. So maybe that's another lesson. And I think it's worth adding that you did not see the war itself as inevitable. Absolutely not. This is what was so shocking about the war that, I mean, time and time again, um, British traders would get themselves into some sort of a pickle at Canton, and they would write some incensed petition back to the House of Commons begging for a war fleet, you know, writing to the foreign minister. Um, and time and time again, they were told to behave themselves. In the view of the British government was that, it, that they could not possibly sanction British subjects breaking laws in China. If they did that, they had to suffer their own consequences. Even Palmerston said that. Palmerston, who launched the Opium War, um, less than a year before he, he launched the Opium War, he issued clear instructions that any British who got in trouble for misbehaving in China had to suffer their own consequences and the government wouldn't help them. So over the long term, the clear pattern was hands off. Um, there, and the notion of using violence to advance trade was, you know, went completely against the morality of the time as it was understood in Britain at the time. And I think in one of the most paradoxical things about this war, which comes out during, when, during the debates when it actually erupts, um, is that this is the same British government that had just recently abolished slavery. 
And as the critics point out, how could it now just turn around and fight a war on behalf of drug dealers? And it's a thorny, complicated issue. I'll make a little pitch. You should read the book, and and I will and I will take it apart for you and explain it. <laughs> okay, I have read the book. It's a wonderful <laughs> book. Unfortunately, we're out of time, or I would ask you another dozen questions. <laughs> Thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you so much.